preach Psalm 24 for us. This is not an easy psalm to preach. But I know Brian's well prepared. I know he's already preached it to Brett. So he's had a practice run. I know he's going to do a great job. So as he comes forward, and, and Jennifer will come forward to read Psalm 24 for us. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 24 is our scripture reading this morning. You can find it on page 458 in your pew Bible. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. morning. Before I pray uh, this morning, I'm reminded of Isaiah 66, which says, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Let's pray. Dear God, we want to be those who are humble and contrite in spirit, poor in spirit, open-handed, asking for you to give for us to receive what you have for us today. Lord, we want to tremble at your word. We want to expect that in this word there is life. Please help me as I preach to be faithful to that word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the last time it happened was in 1953 when Dwight Eisenhower was president and people hadn't even landed on the moon yet. Do you know what I'm thinking of? For the first time in 70 years, on May 6, 2023, 4,000 troops and 19 military bands marched down the streets of London, England. A gold carriage arrived bearing the man who inherited the throne of the United Kingdom. But this was the coronation day of Charles III. Perhaps you saw it on TV. Though he was king already, 
This solemn ritual containing elements of the crowning of an English monarch, such as anointing the king by oil and reading uh, scripture, stretched back a thousand years before Big Ben, before Buckingham Palace, before the Battle of Hastings, before the London Bridge. If you watched this coronation, you might have felt the majesty of it all and the pomp and, and the tradition, especially during Handel's famous musical anthem, Zadok the Priest, quoting from 1 Kings 1, verse 39. And yet, this man is just a man. He will reign for 10, maybe 20 years. I mean, he's already in his mid-70s. So, not a long time. How much more glorious will be the day when the governments of the world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen. His majesty is unforgettable. His love is indescribable, and his power is eternal. And that brings us to Psalm 24 today. The main idea of this psalm, I suggest, is behold the king of glory. The main idea is behold the king of glory. We will look at three parts of Psalm 24, and my three points will be the king of glory is all creator, the king of glory is all holy, and the king of glory is all victorious. All creator, all holy, and all victorious. First, the king of glory is all creator. Let's look at the beginning, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So my, my point is that he is all creator, and the evidence of this that I want to bring to you is that this king's domain is awesome. It's very easy to read past that first sentence of Psalm 24, but there's more than meets the eye, as so often happens with the scriptures. The earth is the Lord's. Okay, now what? I remember seeing this verse as a brand new Christian. It was like on this piece of dot matrix printer paper with really grainy graphics. It was maybe 1991. For those of you who don't remember or don't know or were born afterwards, a dot matrix printer was the kind of printer that uh, had all the pages connected end to end. And on the sides were these long pieces of paper with holes in them so that it was able to reel it through the printer. I know, real old stuff, right? But it was great because you could peel off the little, little things with the holes in them and do lots of fun stuff. Anyway, I remember seeing this, Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's. And I thought, wow, that's so basic, but actually so profound as a new believer because I started to understand what a huge claim that actually was. This was saying that the God revealed in the Bible is not a local God only, as the ancient Near East understood, like a God of the sea, like Poseidon, or a God of the harvest, such as Baal. As the Apostle Paul spoke in Athens, many years later, recorded for our benefit in Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul said this, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So in this 
in this little phrase, the earth is the Lord's, there's a lot packed into it. Everything. Everything? Everything. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So this king's domain is not restricted to the boundaries of Britain or South Africa or Australia or the United States. He is not a national god. He was not just the king of the Jews. His claim and his domain reach much farther. Listen, do you know that song, that Christmas carol that says, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found? It's a joy to the world. But it was not written originally as a Christmas song. It was written as a reminder that Jesus is coming again. How far is that curse found? If we're honest today, I'm sure each of us can think of ways in our own lives or in the world that we see that curse, the curse of sin, affecting our fallen creation, our fallen world. It's found in every inch of this creation God designed. But the gospel says God chose not to leave it there. The Dutch pastor Abraham Kuyper famously said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. But is that your experience and conviction? Do you really know that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it? We don't want to miss out on the glorious and precious world that God made for our satisfaction and enjoyment. You see, he's a good builder, and verse 2 tells us that. Verse 2 of Psalm 24 says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers or the waters. Now, if you go into the Hebrew for the words founded and established, you find that these are construction verbs. Any construction workers out there? Landscapers? Anybody? Anybody ever help to frame a house? Carpenters? The word founded in Hebrew means to create a foundation for a building, and the word Hebrew for established means to erect beams and to frame out the house. If God owns the house of the earth, then he owns all the stuff in the house. See? He designed the earth, he founded it, he constructed it, and he furnished it. So what belongs to him? Well, first, the earth's origin is his. He made everything out of nothing. John 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. In other words, God didn't just build the laws of nature. He shaped the scales and the wings of a butterfly. Well, that sounds fine because, I mean, who's offended by a butterfly, right? Everybody likes butterflies. But God also crafted the proboscis of the mosquito. Ouch and the endurance of the cockroach, and the haltiers of the housefly. The haltiers, by the way, are those little drumstick-shaped organs underneath its wings you didn't even know about that help the fly turn on a dime. That's why it's so hard to swat them. Now, I know you may not love houseflies, cockroaches, and mosquitoes because they can be real pests and carry diseases. But for a moment, I want you to look with me beyond the damage to a creator who makes them worthy of our appreciation. And imagine how they could exist without harm. Male mosquitoes, for example, only suck juice from fruit. In the wild, 
Cockroaches, cockroaches' flat body helps them live under the leaves and act as nature's garbage men. Houseflies have amazing immune systems and help reduce waste. And of course, they are food for other organisms like birds. Also, our, our origin story belongs to God. The Bible boldly claims that Adam and Eve were our historical first parents, created directly by God out of the dust of the earth and not evolved by chance. You are one of his purposeful creations. You are his beloved. He desires to be Lord of every inch of you. And this can only happen as we press on to be renewed by the grace of God. We must learn to enjoy and savor the Lordship of Christ over all his creation, starting with us and working outwards. What else belongs to him? Think about every area of human experience and culture. Mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, psychology, research, agriculture, history, communication, relationships, economics, art, justice, ethics, religion, etc. I remember when I went to university my first year, and uh, that was a long time ago, and I first read a book by one of my professors on communication, and it talked about the need to see communication as a gift of God, his creation. Though communication is often abused because of man's fall into sin, Jesus came to redeem communication just as he came to redeem individual people. That really opened my eyes to seeing that when Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, that it really does mean everything belongs to him. And it made me more committed to thinking about what I communicate. So it's based on Christ and not on the pattern of this world. We can begin by asking, how can I honor Christ fully in each area of my life? For example, do you have friendships? Then what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over those? To think with renewed minds about God's intention for your relationships. Are you single or married? Is Jesus ruling over your sense of gender and sexuality? Or do your ideas about those come from your society? Much like 100 years ago, people kind of just went with the flow. Do you have children? Then what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord over your family? Do you think your budget reflects the Lordship of Christ? Is your view of people of other races or other classes or disabilities based on Christ? Or are you uncomfortable with them? Does your mind need to be renewed in this area? Do you let Jesus be Lord over your emotions? Or do you just need some more me time? What about our view of entertainment and recreation? Isn't God sovereign over these things too? Does Jesus' lordship in your workplace mean you should just use it for witnessing? Or can your work itself be done to the glory of God? Instead of one or the other, I suggest both. For Jesus is not only a Lord of relationships, but also of human culture, work and play, business and economics, education, the arts, the sciences, and much more, as I said before. So if we really believe this is true, then what would, what would awe look like? If this world belongs to God, as Psalm 24 tells us, then wonder, I think, should have a bigger part in our lives. Kids are really good at this. But somehow, as we get older, the responsibilities of life start to erode that wonder and our own sin. We've been walking, actually, without knowing, on holy ground 
since the moment we started to take our first steps. The reason why the world does not blaze with God's glory to us is not its fault. It's because we are used to defining everything by human need. But the right response is awe. He intentionally made the world in a very detailed way. And at the root, a very spoiled thing was a thing once good that gave glory to God. So we need to regain this vision with wonder and awe and worship. We need to pay attention to the creativity of this king of glory. Nothing exists apart from his purpose, for it bears his invisible royal signature. So the first point was that God, the king of glory, is all creator. And the evidence of that is the awe-inspiring domain of this king. Second, the king of glory is all holy. Let's look now at verses 3 through 6. Looking back at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see, the evidence that God is all holy is that this king's character is pure. Psalm 24 brings us from looking at the whole world and zooms into the land of Israel like some kind of spiritual Google Earth. So we're imagining now in the psalm coming closer to just the land of Israel over whom David was king. And we're continuing to zoom in as we imagine ourselves moving west towards Jerusalem across the deepening shadows of the narrow Kidron Valley. We see the sun set behind the hills. David's city stands above, catching the sunlight for a few more moments while the valleys are darkening. Above the old city, there is the palace of David. And near it, we glimpse the fluttering of the tent fabric which contains the Ark of the Covenant. Here, David brought it only a few years before, after he became king over Israel and Judah. There was no temple yet, because that would be built further east on Mount Moriah by David's son Solomon later on. And the tabernacle, which is where the ark was, was actually still at Gibeon, remember? And then it got captured by the Philistines, the Old Testament says, and eventually rescued back. So the tabernacle was somewhere else, where the high priest Zadok made sacrifices according to the law of Moses. But here is the Ark of the Covenant in a tent at the top of a hill. So when David says the hill of the Lord, when he wrote this psalm, he means something different than the experience of later believers ascending to the temple for the feast of the Passover since the first temple was built by his son Solomon. Although, in a way, as he writes this psalm, guided by the Holy Spirit, this can be a vision prophesying of that day when people would actually go up to the temple singing psalms. But I think there's another sense in which David's thinking of this as well. I think David is being very concrete and I think he's referring to the hill he is on, right? He's in his palace. He looks and he sees this tent. He thinks, oh my goodness, how did I get here? I was a shepherd. I was just a working class Joe. His palace was up on that summit and the tent of the ark was nearby. The Lord has lifted David literally above all other people and made him king. So David is just humbled by this and reminded that he must not fall into the error of Saul's pride, the previous king, 
because David knows he could fall just as easily. In either sense, the physical hill that David is on or the spiritual heights of the later approach to the temple, in either case, as David writes this, he is overcome by the majesty of God. So he writes, who, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? David is not thinking so much of the, of the hill, but about the holiness of God. Who dares to ascend this hill and sit on this throne and pray near this ark, which some man defiled simply by touching it on its way to Jerusalem and dying? Who is equal to such a privilege when we are sinners? This is God the all-holy, before whom nations wither and kings cower. And yet, though he may not be safe, he's good. He's pure, and he's good. And his moral beauty is so striking that Isaiah tells us that the angels in heaven face God with their eyes hidden out of reverence. So David continues as he's writing this psalm. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, verse 4, and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So David knows that God has chosen him to be king out of sheer unmerited favor. David knows that the standard is high, that a king who serves God and leads his people must be a faithful man. But David knows deep down that he can never be fully be that man. He is not the king of glory that he writes about in this psalm. He is not the comfort of Israel. He cannot be a high priest and a king and a prophet. He is not enough. Psalm 24 looks beyond the son of Jesse to the son of God. Though neither David nor you nor I have stainless hands and stainless hearts, though we still tremble at the lure of idols, though we shade the truth when it suits us, there is one who has clean hands. There is one who has a pure heart. There is one who was tempted in the desert by the devil himself, who took him to a very high mountain, probably the snow-capped peak of Mount Hermon to the north, and showed him, showed Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan said, according to Matthew 4, verse 8, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now compare that to Psalm 24, verse 4. This king of glory, right, who does not lift up a soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. So we see here that Jesus deserves blessing and honor and glory and power according to Revelation 5 because worthy is the lamb who was slain, slain at the cross. But maybe somebody visiting here today may wonder, oh no, not the cross again. Why can't we just have some inspiring words and go do good in the world instead of hearing about Jesus being slain or the blood of the cross? Why do we have to keep coming back to the, this cross? It seems like a relic of a bygone age. Well, I would say, pay attention to what the Bible really says, not what people say about it. Give the Bible a chance. 
and read through the Gospel of John, the fourth book in the New Testament. There is a divine logic to the cross. There's an exchange going on that is more lasting than the stock exchange or the transfer of energy from the water turbines into electricity down at Spokane Falls. You see this, Jesus, the Son of God, was worthy to ascend the hill of the Lord. He was worthy to stand in God's holy place. Yet he was abused and scorned and executed because of your crimes and mine. We're sinners. This is what we deserve. We're so inconsistent. We're so self-oriented. But Jesus, who deserved, who truly was worthy of honor and glory and blessing, he was treated as we deserved. Our failure to keep his righteous laws, our excuses, our sins, is what Jesus was punished for on the cross. But David, speaking of the messianic promise in Psalm 24, assures us in the Lord that those who trust in God for their salvation will receive blessing from Yahweh, the covenant name, the I Am. You see, it's, we don't just get forgiveness, right? Because we, who are sinners, we also, we are given, we are given what Jesus deserves. We are treated with his righteousness. The word righteousness here in Psalm 24 refers to the gift of righteousness, a righteousness reckoned by faith to be seen as holy before you are actually holy as the Spirit works in you and sanctifies you and, and brings you to a place of actual righteousness. Before all of that, you are justified to be accepted as though you are a friend of God, as though you had ascended the holy hill with pure hands and a clean heart. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Verse 6. So as we think about how this applies to us, we look to faith and repentance. Faith approaches this king and delights in his glory. Not my own. Repentance is longing to leave our sin and return to the Savior. He calls us to cling to him. Is, is this something that you recognize in yourself? As you think about the condition of your heart? This, has the water of life penetrated your heart? The gospel is good news for the believer and the unbeliever. Our repentance should not only look like repentance of our bad deeds done in clear rebellion to God and his laws, but also repenting of our good deeds also done in the pretense or maybe people-pleasing. Repentance no longer is a chore because of the Christ, for the Christian, it is her joy to repent and be restored to God's peace. It's a turning back to him. It is your royal right to return, to live for him and not for yourselves. The king is all holy. And the evidence of, for this is that his character is pure. We need his righteousness. So the first point was that God, the king of glory, is all creator. The second point of this psalm is that he is all holy. And the third point of the message today is that he is all victorious. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Hmm. The evidence that this king of glory is all victorious is that his power is unstoppable. Let's go back and think. Psalm 24 begins with a vision of the whole world as God's possession. 
then his holy hill. But now at the end of the psalm, we're at the gates. Well, which gates are these? It's not clear from the text which gates these are talking about. Some commentators say that this refers to the ancient gates of the Jebusites, who were the people that David overthrew when he conquered this fortress. They called it Salem. Eventually, though, it becomes known as Jerusalem. But David's not talking about himself in, his, in this section as, as, like, as if he is the conquering king. No, this is the most clearly messianic part of the psalm, pointing beyond David to Jesus. The king of glory himself will come through the gates into the city to dwell with his people forever. Some other commentators see this pointing to when David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem through these gates because the Ark contained the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments, and that was a symbol of God's presence, and his glory was between the golden wings of those cherubim angels. However, the Ark and the Commandments were Old Testament signs pointing to what? Christ, the ultimate law keeper, who came to tabernacle among his people and live with us otherwise known as Emmanuel. 1,000 years later, when Jesus Christ came into Jerusalem to visit the temple on Palm Sunday, the first day of the week, his followers were chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But did you know that meanwhile within the temple, the priests would have been reading the same text they always read on Sundays? Psalm 24. We know this because the oldest part of the Jewish Mishnah describes which psalm was read by the priests for each day of the temple worship, and it was written by an eyewitness before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. So on the first day of the week, Psalm 24 was always read by the priests. And so on the same day that the priests are reading inside the temple in Jerusalem, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Jesus is approaching the eastern gate of Jerusalem, the Golden Gate, from the direction of the Mount of Olives. This triumphal entry of the Messiah was prophesied in Ezekiel 43 when it says, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Later on, after the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans, we know from history that the Golden Gate was rebuilt, only to be bricked up and closed by Muslims when they conquered Jerusalem in AD 810. It was reopened by Crusaders, but closed again the last time by Suleiman the Magnificent in the year 1541, if you wanted to know. It has remained closed for almost 500 years, but none of that makes any difference because the King of Glory came, he died, he conquered, he rose from the grave, and no shut gate will stop him. And when Jesus bodily returns in power and glory, he will open every gate and destroy every enemy that sets itself against his authority and reign, against what is true and good and beautiful. Zechariah 14 also refers to Judgment Day when it says, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem, on the east. Until that day, we, God's people, live with courage as his disciples because his power has been at work in his people to sustain them over the centuries. And here's the evidence of that. 
Emperors Nero and Diocletian tried to kill the Christian faith in the first centuries, but they failed. The Islamic surge across North Africa in the seventh century slowly erased Christian communities and absorbed them into the caliphate, but it couldn't get rid of it completely. Thanks, Charles Martel. The church itself persecuted Protestants during the Reformation, hounding the Waldensians into the Alps and trying to wipe out the Bible-based movement by burning people at the, at, at the stake. But they couldn't kill it. Or what about in the Ottoman Empire in the 17 and 1600s, when forced conversion through the child tax program took kids from Christian homes through a levy and turned them into the Janissaries, an elite military unit? Mere Christianity has been under attack for 2,000 years, but our king continues to be all victorious. The French philosopher Voltaire once said, 100 years from my death, the Bible will be a museum piece. But in 1888, 100 years after his death, the French Bible Society set up its headquarters in Voltaire's old home in Paris. Stalin and Mao's communist purges during the 1940s through the 1970s could not kill the Christian faith. Meanwhile, the Christian population in Asia and the Pacific is expected to grow by about 33%, rising from 287 million in 2010 to 381 million in 2050. Boko Haram and other jihadist groups in Nigeria, where violence is on the rise, uh, have tried to get rid of Christianity. Yet the Christians there who are being persecuted are realizing that the prosperity gospel in Africa is no gospel at all. They will overcome, not by their wealth, not by their best lives now, but by the blood of the cross. And we have more examples in the news that we can't even go into right now. Over the last 20 years, Christians in Iraq and Syria that have suffered from ISIS, Hindu extremists in India just this month, and at home, an intolerant and sometimes hostile Western society. These are real concerns. But more self-identified Christians, um, when we think about this, more self-identified Christians have died for their faith in the last century than all the other centuries combined. Surely by now, we would be gone. This is not a mere movement of people. It is not us. Because for all this, there's never been a more courageous witness of the gospel. And it is the gospel, the word of truth, which is bearing fruit. That explains what's happening. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle every day, every year, every century. Lift up your heads, O gates. So I suggest that we take hope and courage from the vision that no gates can stand against him. In fact, far more ancient and powerful gates, the gates of Hades itself, of death, could not prevail against his resurrection. Jesus is the all-victorious one. He's already overcome, and you shall overcome too. Don't give up hope. Don't look at yourself for your solutions or obsess about your troubles. Look to Emmanuel by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is the warrior king, and he loves the people of his kingdom. He's all victorious, and the evidence of this is that his power is unstoppable. So, in conclusion, Psalm 24 is prophecy fulfilled by Jesus Christ. Behold, the king of glory, the all-creator, the all-holy, 
the all-victorious. I want you, as we close, to imagine your heart today. Are there gates that hold it closed? Maybe they've been closed in unbelief, or maybe in bitterness, or maybe in grief because of loss. You've lost something this last year. Maybe the gates of your heart have been closed by fear or unconfessed sin or a generational pattern of brokenness. Maybe it's something, some circumstance of life that you're facing that's shutting down your heart and you need hope and courage to carry on. And you can seek God with me right now to break through in your life or in the life of someone you care about. Imagine those ancient gates humbled in the path of Jesus, the warrior king, who opens them by his loving power, who turns steel to glass, for they shall let him pass. Let us pray. Lift up your head, O my soul. Be lifted up the gates of my heart that the king of glory may enter again today. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle, fighting for me. Overcome us again, Lord, by your mighty love. Holy Spirit, occupy us that we might feel wonder and awe. Sanctify us that we might share in your holiness. Fortify us with hope and courage in the days to come. For the glory of the Father. Amen. Thank you, Brian, for your very encouraging and well-done sermon. Um, this is the time that we do communion, the Lord's Supper. Um,